It's on this Palm Sunday that we look at passage familiar to many of you that is often read on Palm Sunday, but it's the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. And as in the Gospel of Matthew 21, we'll read verses 1, verses 1 through 14. It's the famous event known not only as Palm Sunday, but more appropriately, the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus Christ. You'll see that in the Gospel of Matthew that we do not read of palms, we read of branches, but it's in the Gospel of John that we read that these branches were palms. But most importantly, we read not just of palms or branches, but we read of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What we see here in Matthew chapter 21 on that Sunday, that first day of the week, thousands of years ago, we see a king ride in on, in majesty, a king of kings and lord of lords, that, that there's never been anyone like this king. So would you turn your attention to the reading of God's word, the gospel of Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put them on their cloaks, cloaks and he sat on them most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds went out before him and that followed him and were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this and the crowd said this is the prophet jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he turned, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. We all long for a king. Any culture that you go to, there is a longing for royalty. We're fascinated with the pictures of royalty, whether it's stories of royalty from centuries ago or pictures of royalty for uh, of uh, in our common day in our modern day i've mentioned it before but anytime royalty is married it becomes a spectacle for the whole world to see little girls from 
early on longed to be a princess. When there's royal weddings, as I said on television, we are glued to it regardless of what country we grew up or culture we're from. There's something that we long for. All of our fairy tales that we read from the time that we are children speak of princes and kings that come to slay the dragon, to slay the villain. We're, we long for the story of the crown prince who comes to rescue the damsel in distress. And so you can understand why the crowds went crazy 2,000 years ago when one who claimed to be the king, the one who claimed to be the king of the Jews, you can understand why Matthew says that the crowd was stirred when this man Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He comes as the king. So what I want to answer briefly this morning is, what do we learn about this king? If Jesus truly is the king of kings and lord of lords, if he truly is the one that we sang about this morning, all glory, laud, and honor, what was it about this king? Who is this king that we come to worship and adore this morning? There's three things that I want to point out about this king here in Matthew chapter 1 on this Palm Sunday as we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The first thing that we have to notice in Matthew chapter 1 is that this king, Jesus, he comes to be crowned Lord of all. Now to put it in some context, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, up until this point, all of the miracles of Jesus, all of the healings of Jesus, all of the works of Jesus had all been underplayed by Jesus. Jesus' whole mission up until this point was to, to quiet down the crowds. Remember, if, if you ever saw Jesus in, in, heal someone or perform a miracle, what does he always say? Don't tell anybody about this. He's always telling people to keep quiet about who he is and what he's come to do. Why? Because he understood that if word got out about his miracles, if word got out about his healings, if word got out that he truly was the son of David, the Messiah, he knew that it would stir the pot enough where the civic leaders and the religious leaders would move to put him to death. And Jesus understood up until this point that he wasn't ready to be put to death. And so up until this point, he had told everyone, keep my work and keep my deity and keep my title of Messiah, the son of David, quiet. But now what happens? In Matthew chapter 1, all cha everything changes. There is no more keeping his miracles and his healings quiet. There is no more desire for Jesus to keep his title or his claim to be the king of the Jews or to be the Messiah, the son of David, quiet anymore. And we can see this by the very entry of Jesus. How does Jesus enter the city in Matthew chapter 21? Does he enter through the side as he would typically do up until this point to keep his presence and his, his position quiet? No, it tells us that he enters into Jerusalem through the crowds which tell us that he enters through the main gates of Jerusalem. Jesus is no longer sneaking around. Jesus is no longer sneaking through the back door, but he comes into Jerusalem through the main gates of the city. He's no longer sneaking in. He's no longer hiding. 
And not only does Jesus enter through the main gates of the city to pronounce his arrival, he doesn't walk in, but it says that he rides in. He rides in as one who is longing to make a scene, longing to now stir the pot to get everybody to wake up to realize that Jesus is the king. He doesn't walk in, but he rides in. And he doesn't sneak in, but he comes through the main gates of the city. And then what do we see? We see in verse in verse 9, we see the crowds are shouting out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna doesn't just simply mean hooray. What does Hosanna mean? We've sang it all this morning. It means, oh, save, save us. Be the Savior that you claim to be. And not only do they shout out, Hosanna, save us, oh, save us, but they shout out, save us, oh, son of David. You see, up into this point, the Jews had longed for the one that would come through the line of David to come, the messianic promise, the messianic king who would come as the son of David to rescue the Israelites from evil and oppression, to rescue them from their sins. And Jesus does nothing to quiet them. Up until this point, Jesus would have said, be quiet. Don't say that in front of everyone. You're going to get me killed. But now he says, bring it. Shout it. Shout that I am the Messiah. Shout that I am the son of David. Shout the loud hosannas. Jesus does nothing to quiet the crowds. Why does he do this? He does this because he's ready to be crowned Lord of all. And then to make, to, to take it a step further, we read in verse 14, 13 and 14, and 12, 13 and 14, that he now goes into the temple, right? He goes into the temple and he starts turning over the tables of the money changers. The only one that can go into a house and rearrange the furniture is who? The owner of the house. What Jesus is saying is, this is my house. This is your house. This house belongs to God. Think about the audacious statement that Jesus was making. This temple, the house of God, is my house because I am God. And so what Jesus is doing intentionally is forcing the hand, finally, of the civic and religious leaders. What Jesus is doing is stirring the pot. Why? because he's ready to be crowned Lord of all. You see, when you encounter Jesus, when the religious and civic leaders encountered Jesus and who he truly was 2,000 years ago, and when you encounter Jesus for the very first time, and you understand for the first time who this man truly is, you can no longer just like him. When you encounter who Jesus truly is, you can no longer just tolerate him. You can no longer just say he's a good teacher. You can no longer just be indifferent to him or simply like him. What Jesus is trying to do 2,000 years ago and what he attempts to do again this morning is to present himself to you for who he truly is. And he says, either crown me or destroy me. Either love me or hate me. Either take me or leave me, but you do not have the option any longer to be indifferent to me. You no longer have the option to just tolerate me. 
You see, Jesus comes and finally here in Matthew chapter 21, he says, crown me or crush me. You have been called to crown me Lord of all. The great James Hudson Taylor, the British missionary to China, said, you only have two options with Jesus. You have the option to take Jesus as Lord of all or nothing at all. He is either Lord of all or nothing at all. But there is nothing in between. And so I ask you this morning on this Palm Sunday, as you are presented with Jesus, the one who we shout loud hosannas, the son of David, the Messiah who has been promised, you can either accept him or reject him. For you this morning, he either becomes Lord of all or nothing of all. He's here this morning to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But not only does Jesus come to be Lord of all, he also comes in peace. He is the king that comes in peace. In verse 2, what does it say? He calls his disciples to go and ask for a donkey. A donkey in the ancient times was a symbol of peace. If this was a king that was coming to enact war on the, on the Romans, to enact a war as a warrior king, he would have come in riding a wild stallion, riding horses and chariots. But he comes in gentle, meek and lowly. In ancient times, a, a donkey was actually symbolic and it was used in peace treaties. A, 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 a country or a legion that was ready to enact a peace treaty would actually send a donkey before them as a sign of peace, as a token of peace, as a peace offering. This Jesus does not come in as the warrior king ready to go to war, but he comes in as the king of peace, lowly and meek and mild. This great Messiah, this great king who is crowned king of kings and lord of lords comes in gentle. Why? Because he's coming to fight a battle that's not against flesh and blood. See, if Jesus' battle was against flesh and blood, of course, he would ride in on a whole legion of horses and chariots to go to war. But Jesus realizes that this battle is bigger. It's against the spiritual forces and principalities of the air, as Paul talks about. You see, this Jesus was not coming in to Jerusalem to take power and to destroy, but this Jesus comes into Jerusalem to lose his power, even to the point of willing to lay down his life so that we might live. What Jesus is announcing by riding in on a donkey is that he is coming in weakness, and that I will triumph through my weakness because of this. Jesus does not come into Jerusalem ready to take the seat and the throne of Herod, but he comes in ready to take the Lamb's place on the altar. What a different Messiah. What a different King that we have. Not willing to take the seat of Herod, but willing to take the place of the Lamb on the altar. He will surrender his life so that the greatest war might be accomplished and settled. The war between God and man reconciling men to himself so they might have peace once and for all. So this Jesus comes as the king who's ready to be crowned Lord of all. He comes in peace, riding in gentle and lowly, willingly surrendering his life 
And then lastly, he comes in to bear our burden. We read the prophet. It says in verse 4 that a prophet, who's the prophet? The prophet is Zechariah. And, and Matthew records this prophecy from Zechariah. Say to your daughter in verse 5, behold your king. You will have a king that will come to you humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt and a foal of a beast of burden. All throughout the Old Testament, this animal that Jesus rides in on is known as a beast of burden. It was, the, it was the horse and the cattle and the other animals, the beasts of the field that were known as the prized possessions. They were the animals that you would ride in on. But the, the donkey was used as someone who would carry the burden of the master. That you would put, put the, the necessary items for work and labor and toil. And so the donkey was known all throughout ancient times, all throughout the Old Testament as the beast of burden. Could you imagine having that as your title, having that as your name? That's the, what you were known for. But don't miss the irony. The one who is called Jesus, the one who is promised to do what? to bear the burdens of the sin of the world is riding the beast of burden. Don't think this is by chance. Matthew is very intentional to weave this story together that one beast of burden would carry the great burden bearer once and for all, that it would be Jesus Christ who would ultimately be known as the great burden bearer who would bear the burdens of the sins of the world. And that the Old Testament says that this Messiah would become like a beast of the field, that this Messiah would be led as a lamb is led out to the slaughter to bear the burdens of the sins of the world. This Thursday night, as we regather for worship on Monday, Thursday, we will begin the service by singing, Cast thy burden upon the Lord. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. You see, the message of the gospel is this, and this is what we ultimately celebrate on Palm Sunday, that the great burden bearer has come into Jerusalem to relieve us of the burdens. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness, his perfect record. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. He dies so that we might live. What a king. In 2009, we were... You might remember the story of Thomas Vanderwood. Thomas Vanderwood and his six children and wife lived in Virginia. They were a, a family that would regularly go to church, would be involved in Sunday school and Bible studies. They were the Vanderwoods were a family that deeply believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, convicted that Jesus was Lord over all. But in 2009, we were introduced to them by way of a story of great sacrifice and love. Thomas Vanderwood, the father, was out on his Virginia farm cleaning up the pool and getting it ready for the springtime. And he was out with his son, which they called Josie. Josie was born with Down syndrome. And Thomas and Josie were out preparing the farm and preparing the, the pool for springtime and summer when tragically Josie, their son, 
walked over a cover for the septic tank and fell straight in. Thomas Vanderwood, without blinking an eye, the father leaps into the hole, leaps into the septic tank to to raise his son to life, pushing his way past his son, lifting him up on his shoulders in order that Josie might be able to climb out to safety. By the time the officials arrived to the farm, Father Thomas Vanderwood had sunk down and he died. They asked the brothers and the mother, where does this type of love and sacrifice come from? He said, through the love and the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What makes this story all the more interesting is a year later, a British news magazine called The Week picked up this story and an agnostic, a self-proclaimed agnostic writer for this news magazine wrote this title to a story. He said, Why Atheism Doesn't Have the Upper Hand Over Religion. And he writes this, the author writes this about this story of love and sacrifice. He said, this is something, this story is something that probably any father, atheist or believer, might do for his son. Doesn't seem unusual. But only the believer, only the believer can make sense of this deed. He goes on to write, What is it about the story of a man who willingly embraces a revolting, horrifying death in order to save his son that moves us to tears? Why does it seem somehow like a beautiful painting or a piece of music or a fleeting glimpse of perfection in an imperfect world? I say that only theism offers an adequate explanation, and in fact, Christianity might do the best job of all. Christianity teaches that a creator of the universe became a human being, taught humanity through carefully constructed lessons and examples of his own behavior how to become like God, and then allowed himself to be unjustly tried, convicted, punished, killed in the most painful, most humiliating manner possible, all as an act of gratuitous love for a very people who did the very deed. Why does Vanderwood's act of sacrifice move us? Maybe because in freeing, freely dying for his son, he gives us a fleeting glimpse of the love that moves the sun and the stars. It comes closer to the truth, and it does more to explain the otherwise irreducibly mysterious experience of noble sacrifice than any other competing event. He closes, you don't buy it, I dare you to come up with something better. Only the story of Christianity. Only this story that we read about and we celebrate this week makes sense of the world. There is no story in any other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy that it can help us make sense of a God sending his son down to save sinners like you and me. Atheism has no answer for that. Atheism says the strong prevail and the weak will perish. There is no God. There is no love. Only Christianity has a narrative like this. And this week, we celebrate the story of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who did not come to get power but to lose power, who did not come to live but to die and die for you. And the last question I have for you this morning, is he your king? Is he your king? The king that didn't come 
to take power and destroy, but to lose everything so that you could have it all, even the gift of eternal life. We celebrate the greatest story ever told this week. We celebrate the event that changed the world. And the reason it changed the world is because of the central figure, Jesus Christ, who didn't come for some great military conquest. He didn't change the world through some great and epic speech. He didn't change the world because of anything he did other than laying down his life so that we might live forever. And because this king ultimately answered the questions that have haunted humanity forever, could I ever satisfy God? Could I ever be good enough? Could I really live forever? The invitation that Christ shared with his people 2,000 years ago is the same invitation that I share with you this morning. All you who are weary and heavy laden, Come to me, and I will give you rest. That is the king that we celebrate this morning, the great burden bearer. How could you follow anyone else? How could you follow any other king, any other lord? He truly is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king that not only changed the world, but he's the king that this morning can change your life now and forevermore.